Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infections, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. 100 times stronger than bleach, yet safe enough to drink, HOCL is the most important chemical you've never heard of. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, disinfection, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at HOCLA.org. My guest today is Stephanie Morris. Stephanie is a serial entrepreneur and marketing specialist focused on branding, social media advertising, and emerging mobile commerce markets for health and wellness brands. Stephanie is a creative and strategic thinker who excels at conceptualizing and orchestrating go-to-market strategies that drive sales performance and exposure for ethical brands through data-driven decision-making and deep cultural insights of Asian markets. She has expertise in Chinese consumer markets and directing bilingual marketing campaigns in English and Mandarin using both Western and Chinese social media platforms. Stephanie has proven experience in creating, growing, and running small businesses as the owner and executive chef of three food and beverage companies and brands operating in southern China and Thailand. She possesses a strong track record in training and leading multicultural teams based on nine years of experience in Asia and fluency in Mandarin HSK Level 4. She's currently working in the cannabis industry as the store manager at Sessions in the Beaches. Thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the show, Stephanie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So take me back. Where did you first get your start in the culinary world? First, I want to say that I'm no longer employed with Sessions. I was let go around May 12th of this year, May 12th. So yeah, that's a little fix up. So basically what happened was I got back from Asia in 2019, September. And then I started working in the cannabis industry here in Toronto the following January, 2020. I worked in the industry as a bud tender, which is basically like a weed sales associate. And then COVID hit. So we closed the dispensary that I was working at for a couple of days and they called me back. But since I was living with my parents who were elderly, I decided to stay home because here in Canada, we had something called CERB. And this was $2,000 a month if you could not work due to COVID. So I stayed on CERB for about six months. And then I was hired by Sessions as the store manager. And from October to May, around seven months, I worked there as the store manager. But the company was all over the place, really hard to work with a lot of the upper management. I would bring issues and problems to them, and I would be labeled as combative, dramatic, and just crazy. So that quickly deteriorated. And then they let me go because they were removing my position. They were no longer having store managers. Instead, they were using a multi store manager to do three different stores, including one of mine. 
so they let me go without cause and then proceeded to try to get me to sign an NDA to receive my one week pay, which is legally granted to anybody who has let go without cause after three months probation. They tried to trick me into signing an NDA and I didn't sign it. And then I didn't get my money from them. And it turned into this whole thing. And since this happened, I have become a labor rights activist. And I'm currently working with a company organization, sorry, called United Weed Workers here in Toronto. Because what happened to me wasn't there was a lot of sexism. There was a lot of basically bullshit, excuse my French. But I was finding that a lot of other people were feeling the same way in the industry. I was really vocal about losing my job on LinkedIn. And a lot of people, I would say 50 people messaged me over the course of a week, letting me know that either the same thing happened to them at sessions or the same thing happened to them at different dispensaries around the city and around the country. So I was noticing a pattern that people were getting poorly treated. And a lot of people here in Ontario, especially, let's maybe say all of Canada, are treating the cannabis industry like it's any other retail business. So we have industry leaders that are coming from Apple, that are software developers, that come from the retail game, like Best Buy, Future Shop, all these kind of electronic retailers and trying to run it like it's any other retail business, which that platform or that way of doing something doesn't work in cannabis because cannabis is whew, so different than buying a pair of pants at Zara, right? Here in Ontario, we do something called the cancel, which is $100 and it's a 10 hour, six hour test that you have to go through to become a bud tender. So I don't know anybody that's working in retail that has to go through that before they start a job. And selling phones, selling clothing is way different than selling. Cannabis people are part of a community and have been part of a community for ages, way before legalization. So we already had this community thriving and then the legal cannabis industry opened up and now everything is about money and everything is basically about greed. And now the market is completely oversaturated. We have a thousand stores, more stores opening by September. And we already have way too many as it is. You can find a dispensary, one on every block or a couple on every block. And everybody is treated poorly. From what my experience was, we did not have a security card helping us close. A lot of the people I managed were younger women who expressed that they were quite uncomfortable with leaving the store at 11 p.m., 11.30, because that's the time that we closed, to close at 11. So I expressed the concern to my managers, and they, again, told me that I was being dramatic and that I was being combative and that we did not need a security guard and that it was too much of an expense. And I said, when you let the staff know that a security guard is too much of an expense, you're basically letting them know that they're not worth the money. They did not like this answer and told me again, there's no reason to be combative. There's no reason to be dramatic or angry and that they will look into it because the owner of Sessions, his brother actually owns a security company. And I was flabbergasted at this because if you, if your brother owns a security company or if somebody in the business owns a security company, why is it such a hard thing to get a security guard in one of the stores? It, I, I was mind boggling. And this was just one point of contention and it went further and further. So after I was let go, I was very vocal, like I said, on LinkedIn about what happened. And like I said, lots of people reached out to me, one of them being the co-founder of United Weed Workers. And since then, I've found my passion of trying to help other people bringing people together and letting them know their rights. Because a lot of young people, we don't understand when we're being treated poorly because we've been treated poorly in jobs our whole lives. One of the new multi-level manager at Sessions on the Beaches, as well as Warren Albion, he once told my driver, 
that if she didn't like not getting paid what she was supposed to get paid, then she can quit. And unfortunately, that's pretty much everyone's attitude when it comes to cannabis. If you don't like it, leave, because we'll just find somebody else that's willing to work for $2 above minimum wage if you don't want to. So since then, it's been about two months almost, and I have been working with that organization ever since to try to help other people. Before all of this, if we go back to what you said about me, which everything you said and like summing it all up in one sort of little paragraph makes me sound so interesting and accomplished, which I don't feel <laughs> like that, which is very cool. It's like when you put everything on everything I've ever done on a page, it looks like a lot. So thank you for that introduction. It made me feel very important. But going back to the very beginning, I left Canada at 25. I was bartending, getting into trouble, drinking, doing all the party things that you do in your 20s. And I realized I want something more than this. I need to change my life. I need to make a big decision. So I was getting kicked out of my house because my typical 20 something girl friendships, that's what happens. We were not getting along because of one thing or the other. One was being too loud. One was having too many people over. One was getting into fights with the third one. It was just a disaster. So I was sitting on my floor using my computer, the old computers. I don't know if everybody will remember if anybody is a Gen Z, maybe they won't. The computers with a monitor and a <laughs> side tower. So it's dating me a little bit. This was back in uh, 2010. So I was sitting on my floor. The movers are taking my stuff out or they already had. And I was sitting there on my computer waiting for my mom to come and pick me up and move the small stuff. And I got an email from this website that I guess I had signed up for previously. And it was called the goabroad.com. And I was looking at the email and an email that I got was teach in Thailand. And I looked at the website and I looked at the email and I looked into it and it was going to be 600 bucks to take a TEFL course teaching English as a foreign language in Thailand. So it was a month long course, like I said, 600 bucks and 600 bucks for the rent for the month. So the whole course and the rent, everything in $1,200 Canadian. So I said, what am I doing here? I'm not doing what I want. I know I want something different in my life. So why not just go for it? I emailed my parents who were on vacation in Jamaica because that's where all Canadians go for a holiday. And I told them, I want to move to Thailand. I want to take this course. And what do you guys think? So they said, absolutely go for it because they know that I had been struggling in Toronto and not doing the healthiest things. And they said, we'll help you pay for the course. And I used my tax refund money to purchase a one-way ticket to Thailand. And I spent the next nine years in Asia. The first thing I did was complete the TEFL course, uh, which was incredible. Living in the southern part of Phuket, which is pretty much where all the tourists go, southern Thailand, and uh, loved it. It was wonderful. I immediately got a job in Bangkok teaching kindergarten. It was my first real job that I had to go through every morning. And I just fell in love with teaching. From there, I moved back to Canada briefly and lived in Montreal and quickly realized I hated the winter in Montreal. I hate the winter anyway. But the winter in Montreal was just awful. So I said, you know what, I want to go back to Asia. I decided to get away from Thailand because I wanted to do something more than teach. And I decided on China because Chinese, of course, is a widely used language that perhaps I could use in the future. So I moved to Suzhou first, just a small city of 10 million. <laughs> and from there, I taught another kindergarten, international kindergarten for about six months before I moved to Beijing. Beijing was my first huge city. And there I went and attended university as well as taught uh, at two different schools. So I was basically working seven days a week, five days a week at school. And I quickly became obsessed with becoming fluent with Mandarin. So after Beijing, I was there for about a year. Um, again, the winter was killing me and I decided to move to Shenzhen, which where, is where I spent most of my time in China. Now, as soon as I got to Shenzhen, I loved it. There was 
palm trees everywhere. I lived in the expat area by the water. You can't swim in the water, of course, but you could walk by the water. And I immediately felt almost like home. I That was where I started my first business, which was called Namaste. It's a play on words between nom and namaste. So combine them, you've got namaste. And this was a vegan ice cream company that basically I worked alone at home, creating different kinds of flavors like kiwi lychee, date cardamom, lavender, blueberry, and all these fun things. So that was my first experience working from home and creating like a small business platform that people ordered directly from me and I would go deliver it myself. This turned into another, my first restaurant out in Shenzhen. I was very good friends with another person from Canada and we decided let's do a restaurant. I already had recognition in Shenzhen. I had been written up a couple of times in magazines praising me for bringing healthy living to China. And so I already had a bit of notoriety. I already had a bit of tiny bit of fame. So I was able to bring the people to the restaurant as well as I was in charge of the design, the menu design the food and everything, sort of general manager, founder, marketing. I was, of course, I was also in charge of all of the social media and creating flyers and all that great stuff. So that was called Green Room. We opened in 2016, May, and it was amazing. I had never owned my own place before. All the hard work had paid off. We had a beautiful space. It was two floors. It was completely open concept. We had made this living wall out of carpet. So it looked like plants, but it was actually just carpet that was cut in different sizes of octagons. So we glued it on the wall. I had a friend of mine, Duke. I commissioned my friend to do two different paintings, one of a very eggplant and one of a very cute tofu. And she had designed them in Canada and sent me the files and I printed them out on huge canvas. And then we put them up in the stores. We had a little bit of Canadian influence in there. Sorry, in the restaurant. So that was going great for about eight months. Then my partner and I were butting heads about who was doing the most work. He ended up pulling out and the investor and I decided that the space was too big to continue using and we decided to close the restaurant. At that point, I went to Italy because I had gotten a little bit of money for closing the restaurant. I did all of the selling of the items that we no longer needed and the headaches of closing it up. And so I went off to Italy. In Italy, I I found myself again. I was able to reignite my passion for food because, of course, working in a restaurant, you're around food all day. But the last thing you want to do is eat and create because of the stress of the restaurant. So in Italy, like I said, I found myself again, came back to China a month later and started another company called Delish. And this has been the most profitable, like the most important part of my time in Asia. We started out as just a breakfast restaurant, um, sorry, not restaurant, but uh, a delivery company, again, making fruit from home. And then I decided or discovered this app with Chinese drivers. It's all in Chinese, so you had to be able to read and write and speak Chinese at this point. I had been going to Shenzhen University and was there for about three years. And so I could read fluently, write fluently, speak fluently, listen, of course. So I found this app and again, Chinese drivers, uh, you choose your location and choose the destination. Somebody comes and picks it up and you prepay. So that was working very well, just doing breakfast. And then people would ask me, do you do lunch and dinner? And I thought about it and I was like, you know what? Yes, I do. And so Delish was born and... What I did was, at the beginning, it was very difficult to have a bunch of ingredients at home and always have those ingredients on hand just in case somebody orders them. So what I did was I started making a preset menu for the week. Everything, we would have the same meal for lunch and dinner, and I would do a drink, a dessert, an app, and a main. And you can choose just one, or you can choose all four and get a discount. And if you order more than four in a month, then you get one free. So people started ordering packs, 12 packs, um, then you get a couple of days free. And this would help me budget my money. I was able to pay rent on time instead of people like randomly ordering during the week. This forced people to look at the menu for the month. 
And I would post, of course, the menu for the month a couple of days before the beginning of the month. People could take a look at it, choose what they wanted. And then I would have a great schedule to work with during the week. I, the day before, I would stop orders for lunch at 6 p.m. So I could organize, get groceries, and then pre-call the delivery people to make sure they're showing up on time and getting to the location properly. So again, this worked very well. And it worked to my advantage, of course, to be speaking, reading, and writing and be able to understand Chinese. If I wasn't able to do that, then I would have never been able to use that app and it would have never been able to help me to get where I needed to be in terms of growth. So again, that went on for about two years. It became very popular. I was very busy. I was the only Western style delivery, vegan delivery that would deliver basically anywhere in the city. Where I lived was the expat area with a Western style restaurants, but not the best food, very pub-like or just like not healthy stuff. So people would come to me a lot. And what I would do is it would be free delivery in my vicinity, but then I would just charge the customer the delivery fee that the app would give me. And they were very happy to pay the delivery fee just so they could get this food out to their house. And then I would start making frozen dinners for people where like a full lasagna, a do-it-yourself big salad with sauce on the side. So people would pre-order these big things. I would send it out and they'd be able to like reheat stuff. So this became very popular. From there, I had two people approach me that I knew that were restaurateurs in Shenzhen, very successful. And they also had a restaurant on an island called Koh Tao in Thailand. And I had always dreamed about getting back to Thailand. And so they said, Steph, we love what you're doing here. Absolutely love what you're doing. You're doing a great job. We love the food. We love the branding. Everything you're doing is great. Why don't you come to Koh Tao, Thailand and make a delish there? And I weighed the two options, leaving China, being in China or moving to a tropical island in Thailand. And of course, the easy decision was to leave China and move to Thailand. So that's exactly what I did. I left China in 2018, December, and moved to Thailand. And I had the restaurant open by end of February. Again, it was named Delish Plant-Based Kitchen. And we had a bit of a rough start. I went there with a boyfriend of mine who was supposed to do the restaurant with me. I was going to take care of the back of house. He was going to take care of the front of house. But as soon as we got there, that pretty much ended and he was out and off the island. And so I was left to open and do everything myself. Now, Thailand is a hard place to work as a Canadian because I think it's because they expect you to work, work. I didn't get a day off. I worked seven days a week, 10 hour days. I had some help in the restaurant, but very little. And my dream quickly turned into a bit of a nightmare. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about the business more than I could ever dream of getting in a hospitality course. So I, again, loved it. I was there from December until September of the next year. The whole time that I was there, I met so many fantastic people. I had so I had so much great feedback. We had five-star reviews constantly on TripAdvisor and Google and everything, our Instagram. I, again, was doing all the marketing. I was taking all the pictures. I was doing all the cooking and I had a little bit of help for prep. I was doing all of the event ideas. I was doing all of the advertising. So I quickly started to burn out, but you're not allowed to burn out when you're working in Thailand as the sole proprietor of a restaurant. So my investors were constantly on me, constantly pushing me. And Again, this was just not the way that I wanted to work. I wanted it to be a job, not my entire life. And even thinking about that made me feel guilty almost that I wasn't doing enough, that I wasn't good enough. And that quickly turned into me abusing alcohol and taking prescription drugs and losing 20 pounds and working myself to death. All the positives started to drift away and the negatives started to seep in. I wasn't able to sleep at night properly. I was working myself to the bone and I felt completely unappreciated.
again, it was a dream and I lived it and it was fantastic. And I, again, had a lot of positivity within the time that we were open, but eventually it all came to an end at the end of August in uh, 2019. The Thai partner that I was so close with said she was unhappy with my work ethic and that I was out. This happened all because I had a Thai chef come in to help me, but she didn't speak English and I didn't speak Thai at the time. So I asked my Burmese assistant who speaks English Thai and Burmese, of course, to train this Thai chef. But my Thai partners didn't like it. And the Thai chef didn't like that she wasn't getting trained by the white person because Burmese and Thai have this huge thing. Thai people think that they're better than Burmese and it's all just a mess. So all of this caused us to go separate ways. There was a bit of a mafia connection with my old boss in Thailand. So I said, you know what? Um, this isn't worth getting disappeared over. So... I talked to my parents. I had two cats that I had brought from China just a year before, and I wasn't about to leave them there. So we had to get them back to Canada somehow, which was a lot of money, but there was no other way I could see it working. So I left Yep, September 15th and came back to Canada with the cats. And that was my first time in Canada to live since 2010. To say that it was a culture shock, is a complete understatement. It was insane. And I came back right in September and it got cold by November and I haven't had an experience of winter in close to 10 years. So that's where I fell. And as much I was, as I was unhappy that the restaurant had closed, it almost was like a weight lifted off my shoulders. And consequently, right after I got back, COVID hit. So it all was serendipitous in the way that it happened. Because if I had stayed, it would have closed anyway. And it would have been very hard to get out of Asia and back to Canada, especially with two Chinese national cats. So in the end, it all worked out the way it was supposed to. And I started working in the cannabis industry and shifted gears. But I miss the hospitality industry. I miss the restaurant industry, but I don't think enough to go back because woo, that industry eats you up and spits you out. 14 hour days, seven days a week is just not something that I want to do. I'm an idea person and I like to have the big idea and then be able to implement it around me. Instead of working 12 hour days, you work four or five hour days advising other people on how to do things. So that brings us up to date in terms of what I've been doing for the past 10 years, casually. So yeah, that's how it all started. And this is where I am now. I, like I said at the beginning, after sessions had let me go, I decided that I really wanted to get into labor rights. And that's when United Weed Workers and I sort of joined forces. And I'm hoping to either get into the paralegal program at an online university because the two universities that I'm looking at right now are quite far away from my house and I don't drive. It's opened up my eyes to so many different options instead of just the weed industry or hospitality. Now I've realized that I am interested in law and I'm interested in helping people and I'm interested in making a big difference in this world. And I just don't know how I can do that working in a cannabis dispensary in Toronto. So. Wow. Yeah. Hell of a journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me a little bit more about just like the overall experience of like being an entrepreneur overseas. And for people that might be listening that are like interested in something like that, like what are some things people should know before they get into such an endeavor? Absolutely. Learn the language. That would be my first and foremost. I wouldn't think about going over to another country that uh, you don't know the native tongue and then trying to start a business. Because when we opened Green Room, my partner did not speak any Chinese, but I was fluent because I had been in university in Shenzhen for about three years before that. So I was able to listen while they 
told each other that they were going to make us pay higher and that we were all stupid foreigners. And I was able to understand this and be like, hey, I can understand you. And that's not what's going to happen in this situation. They were flabbergasted. They were totally knocked off their feet. They couldn't understand why some white girl was able, able to understand them and speak back and question what they were doing. So this saved us some money and it saved us a lot of headache. And that's what I take away from the situation. If you want to make it as an entrepreneur, of course, you have to have grit and you have to be able to get back up when you've fallen or when somebody pushes you down and then kicks you. But you have to be able to speak your mind and you have to be able to understand what is being said in front of you and what people are saying in general. If you can't speak that language, you better have a confidant or somebody that you trust that does, which is very hard when you're moving to a new country. You think you are going to get some help, but locals tend to stick together. We had a Chinese lawyer working with us to open Green Room. We didn't know her. We didn't know anything about her other than that she was a lawyer that we hired. And so there was always that in the back of my mind of who she working for. Is she working for them? Is she working for us? And another thing you need to understand before you go and start a business anywhere else is the regulations and laws of that country. Can you work from home? How illegal is it? Can you start a restaurant by just being a foreigner? Can you own property? All of these things need to be thought about because especially in China and a lot of Asian countries, you cannot be the full proprietor of a business. You have to have a Chinese person involved in your business, either as the 51% shareholder or a shareholder that controls a lot of the business, unless you're going to do a joint venture with the other foreigners, but then you are not covered under certain insurances. You are not able to do certain things in terms of business unless you have that Chinese partner and you can absolutely not own any land. The same in Indonesia. Every business has to have a 51% shareholder as uh, that's Indonesian. You absolutely can't not own any land. And the same in Thailand, 51% shareholder in your business has to be Thai, meaning they can take over at any point and kick you out, which is absolutely frustrating and exactly what happened to me. I did all of the work. I made a great environment. I made us a great name. I did absolutely everything I could to make the restaurant work. And at any point, I knew that it could be taken away from me, but I trusted my Thai partner and said she'd never do that. But that's exactly what happened. So you have to be almost ready to be screwed over. You have to have a plan A, B, C, D, all the way up to Z, for goodness sakes. You have to be ready for absolutely anything. And if you're that, the kind of person that can stand up after being knocked down and kicked, then I would not recommend becoming an entrepreneur, especially in another country, because it will happen. It will happen. And especially in China, I was ripped off from my ideas. I was first making these salads and jars that were layered and getting my little jars that were plastic from Taobao, which is like the Chinese Amazon. And these were all over the city, became really popular. Lots of people took pictures. And then I started seeing them pop up in little Chinese shops. I'm not saying that like I influenced it, but maybe I did. And certain little restaurants started doing salad in jars. And so you have to be ready for people to steal your ideas, but you just have to do it better. And you have to be ready for people to try to imitate you. But again, what? Imitation is the form of flattery. So you have to just be ready to charge on ahead. And again, you have to be innovative when you have these ideas. Because if you stop creating and if you stop being that innovative person that an entrepreneur is, then you stop being successful. So to summarize that, definitely learn the language, definitely understand the laws and understand if your business is viable there. That's great. Thank you. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? <laughs> yeah, failure is fantastic. So it's hard to call it failure because every failure turns into a lesson learned. We think that we failed, quote unquote, so that's it. 
So we're dumb. We can't make it. We're no longer good. We, we, we can't do anything. But in fact, every failure sets us up for success. So let's even pay, let's even talk about green room, right? Green room closed because my partner and I, we just couldn't see eye to eye. It just wasn't working. The overhead for the rent was insane, close to $8,000 Canadian a month. And we just were not, we're making that as a, a little business that's just starting off, especially a niche market, a Western style vegan restaurant, the first one in the province to market to Chinese people. It just, we just didn't have a big enough following. So when that closed, I was devastated. Of course, it was my first project. I decorated the place. I put everything into it. And as we were closing, I was again, just so upset. And I felt like a failure. I felt like I couldn't do anything else, but what happened was it turned into a great opportunity to build Delish, which was again, work from home, no overhead. And it turned into a really viable business, which then led me to Thailand. So just because one thing didn't work out doesn't necessarily categorize it as a failure. That means it just didn't work out. It was not supposed to work out and the longevity was not supposed to be there. And so you have that time, that period in time that it did work. That doesn't mean it's a failure just because it's no longer around. And that was probably the best failure that, again, set me up for future success. If Green Room hadn't closed when it did, I wouldn't have gone to Italy. I wouldn't have had a, re a rebirth of getting interested in food. And I wouldn't have started Delish. I wouldn't have moved to Thailand where I learned more than I ever could at any hospitality school and about myself, self-discovery, self-reflection. And yes, that restaurant closed as well. Again, absolutely not a failure because I touched so many people's lives. I created wonderful food that I was proud of. I created a fantastic environment that people would sit there all day drinking tea on their computer, ordering appetizers that made me feel like a success. I was bringing people together and I was making plant-based food that I could be proud of. So the ending of green room turned into delish and then the ending of that part of my life in thailand turned me to canada and i hadn't lived in canada for so long and i got to come home and see my parents and get back into life in canada and then knowing that covid hit in pretty much november it started up in in asia me leaving in September because of a failed restaurant, quote unquote, also set me up to be healthy and successful in Canada. And I think that was really important at that time, because again, if I had gotten stuck in Thailand with two Chinese cats living in Thailand for the past year, it would have been very difficult for me to get home during the height of COVID with, again, two Chinese cats. So again, that failure set me up to come to Canada at the exact right time to be with family, to start my cannabis career, to then be able to collect on government money that helped me live a life of relaxing and healing after such a hard time in Thailand. So all of those failures, quote unquote, again, have led me to the point I'm in now, which is, again, where I'm supposed to be. I don't know if I can call what happened at sessions a failure, because again, I touched people's lives and changed people's lives, the, the ones I worked with. And I think that was a success. We made, we, of course, from a business standpoint, our sales were up. Everybody was happy. Staff was happy. We had less turnover. The customers were happy. Again, I was in charge of Instagram and all the social medias. So I felt very successful there. But since I got let go, I don't know if that is categorized as a failure, right? Perhaps somebody else that hadn't been through what I had been through with the hardships in Asia and making it work and persevering and being adaptable because personally, I think adaptability must be the most important attribute that a human being can have because anything can happen at any time. So once all that stuff happened to me, I was able to adapt and say, you know what? This was not right what happened to me. This was not my fault. I don't blame myself. I don't think that I'm a failure because a shitty company let me go under bad circumstances. 
of me speaking out against them. And I refuse to apologize for who I am. So all of those failures led me to a point of self-actualization when I said, I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm not putting up with this bad behavior from everyone around me just so I can appease them. So I stood up for myself. And again, I was really vocal on LinkedIn about what happened to me. And that led me to other people telling their story, which again was so heartwarming to know that I wasn't alone, to know that other people were going through the same thing and that I felt it was now my duty to take the reins and help other people. And again, that's how I got involved with United Weed Workers and all of that hardship and all of that shit has led me to this point now. And I can say that I'm in a very good position and I'm happy with what I've done. And it's now perhaps led me to a whole new career path. That's awesome. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Yeah, so right now I'm reading Untamed by Glennon Doyle. It's fantastic. She is a recovering addict and recovering eating disorder woman. She is incredible. The book is about her struggles and about her life and about her marriage that didn't work out. And then she fell in love with a woman and and how life changed after that. One of the chapters at the very beginning of the story was about her and her kids. They were at a zoo and there was a cheetah that was chasing like one of those rabbits that they have at the racetrack and it was chasing it and it would stop and people would smile and clap and behaving like a dog. And her daughter asked, what's wrong with the cheetah? What's wrong with her? Why isn't she acting more like a cheetah? And she's, and the mother with Glennon said, she's caged. She doesn't even know how to be a cheetah. And then the cheetah would act like a cheetah and everyone would be surprised, perhaps running or catching something or behaving like a wild animal. And the daughter again, why is she acting like that? And Glennon Doral said, because she's a goddamn cheetah. And that resonated And that is basically the whole premise of the story is you're not the sum of all the things that happen to you. You're not, if you're feeling like you're locked in a box and you're feeling like the situation around you is not serving you, it's because you're a goddamn cheetah and you need to get out there and be yourself. And you need to get out there and do things that fire you up. Don't put you in a box. So that resonated with me because I had such a hard time at Delish in Thailand. And then I had a hard time with coming back to Canada and figuring out where I should be in the world and reading this book and having it resonate with me and the stories that she told about alcoholism, which I can definitely understand because of drinking tons of alcohol in my twenties and in my thirties, I've now stopped drinking booze recently because of the book and because of how I felt. And I've even gotten a really nice, beautiful cheetah tattoo on my arm that reminds me every day to be a goddamn cheetah. Wow, that's definitely really powerful. (laughs) There's a couple other books, but I can't really remember off the top of my head. Oh, one of them perhaps is uh, Laura Cleary's book, Idiot. Again, this is a woman um, who had a really hard upbringing and drug abuse, alcohol abuse, wanted to be an actress and tried very hard to do this. And she worked every day. She had grit. She had perseverance. Yeah, she had a lot of issues with drugs and alcohol, but stopped all of that and changed her life. And now she's... Uh, very famous on Instagram, YouTube. She has two beautiful kids. She's married. And that's an inspiration to me because when you're at your lowest point and your restaurant has been taken away from you for the second time, you're now living at your parents' house at 35. Life is over, basically. I'm never going to meet anybody. I'm never going to get married. Everybody's already done that. I'm never going to have kids. Like I've failed. I've failed at 35 and I might as well just like crawl into a hole and die because If you're not married by 35 with kids, like, then what are you doing? And I know that's not everybody's viewpoint, but like Western culture is so focused on material goods and becoming this person that you're supposed to become instead of becoming the person that you want to become. So those two books have been great reads for me recently, as well as some silly fiction and a poetry book by Elena Del Rey. So really a lot of female authors right now have really been there for me. Awesome. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Oh, wow. 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 Okay. The advice I give everybody all the time is to stick with it. 
until it doesn't serve you anymore. So something along those lines, as well as the word I said before, which is adaptability, perhaps that word, be adaptable, be something that you always wanted to be. And yes, it may not come easy, but man, being adaptable is the best way to become successful because if we are rigid, if we don't bend, we break. And once we're broken, it's very hard to come back from that. So if you can bend into different ways and understand different cultures and understand that not every situation is going to be perfect. So you have to adapt to it when it changes because it will, because that's how life works and travel and see new cultures and understand how different people live because there are so many people in the Western hemisphere that just don't see or understand how other people live. And it's hard to feel gratitude when you don't understand how bad it can be for you. So of course, it's hard to get that on a billboard, but I would say be adaptable and travel the world. Very cool. That's great advice. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice that they should ignore? Any advice that they should ignore? Yeah, yeah. I would say ignore everyone that says what you should do, because there is no should when it comes to finding your path. Also, to kids in high school that haven't chose, have yet to choose a college, have yet to choose their way in life. We were all told back in 2000s, 1999, when I was going into grade nine, you can do anything. We're all special snowflakes and whatever you want to do in your life, you can do it. Just go for it. If you want to be a history major, go and take history at university. And cool, that's all well and good to make kids feel better. But at the end of my year at 35, turning 36, I wish that I had been told, listen, not everybody can do everything and everybody has a special talent. And just because it's a passion doesn't necessarily mean you have to turn it into a job. Because there's so many of my friends that are completely overeducated with no, with no jobs or no real jobs, no careers, because let's just say... For an example, a friend of mine has a biology and uh, science degree. Right now, he works for a car company because he loved science. So they said, absolutely, go into science, study biology, you'll do great. Okay, cool. But instead of telling somebody that, you should also let them know like what kind of careers go along with that degree. Can that degree be used for a job that can actually make you money, that can actually sustain you, that can actually have longevity? Or is it just going to be a useless piece of paper that you really never think about again? And a lot of friends have graduated with poli-sci degrees and not used them or an art history degree or a history degree or again, a science degree or biology degree. And if you're not going into research in terms of biology, and if you're not becoming a biology teacher in um, high school, and if you don't have that passion anymore, you really don't use it again. So I would have loved for my guidance counselor to, instead of just make us all feel better as special snowflakes, maybe in terms of what you're passionate about could be shown as what job perhaps that passion could go into. Instead of just telling us we can be anything, because now we're all like shit out of luck. We, a lot of millennials don't have great jobs and the hopes of purchasing houses as millennials are absolutely shattered. In, in my city, in Toronto, the average house goes for $1.5 million. So how can I ever dream about purchasing a home with no, no job security, like no job that will even pay anybody more than $50,000, $60,000 a year? I would have loved to talk to my guidance counselor and get them to let me know, again, what job I can get from my passion. Not just, okay, you love film. Okay. You love to make movies or you like to watch movies. Okay. You should go study film at university and then like maybe become a director, but that's not realistic. Not everybody becomes a movie star or a movie director right off the bat. It's if you love film, maybe you should go into something a little bit more practical. Maybe you should go into 
editing or I don't know, something a little bit more job oriented, or maybe just because you like film doesn't necessarily mean you have to turn that passion project into a career. What else do you like to do? Or these are the jobs that you could possibly get in film. And this is what they pay, which again, might be low. And again, if you were shown the probability of becoming a director is this percentage and not everybody can get to that job with that much money. So instead of us being told, Hey, you can do anything. I would have been nice to know, Hey, not everybody can do everything, but this is what we think you can do. And these are the jobs that you could get if you went to college or learned to trade. And like the issue with that is trades used to be absolutely loved and everybody would go into trades. There was lots of plumbers. There was lots of electricians back when my parents were young, but then my parents age the boomers they all went to university and then they became scholars and then they pushed all of their children to go to university oh you have to go to university to get a great job and that's not necessarily true and since they were scholars my dad was an engineer and he pressured my brother and I both to go to university and I I went to one I went to one year and I hated it and I left and then eventually like moved to Asia and started my life there but not everybody has to go to university to become anything. And I really wish that colleges were pushed because here in Canada, university and college are different. Usually colleges are two years, university is four. It's more practical to go to college, usually a trade, and then you have university, which is the theses and not really practical jobs out of university. And I wish that we were offered a choice between pursuing a university degree, which sometimes doesn't get you very far, and and or a trade that could potentially, when you do finish school, you can find a job. And so we have, like I said at the beginning, we have all of these completely overeducated people in their 30s that just can't find work because people are not looking for a history major to do much except for teach history. So it would have been nice to know that there were other options. So that college student that you asked me about going back a little bit further before they even start college would be questioning what they want to do with their lives, not just because of like their passion, but what kind of money they want to make, where they want to live, if they want to live in Canada, if they want to live somewhere else, and then determining what kind of schooling they need to get to that position. Anybody that's finished school, college and some advice to ignore is that everything has to be perfect or that you have to be working your ass off to get where you want to be because you don't necessarily have to work your ass off if you have grit and you can withstand storms. So not everything has to be perfect. And just because you studied something in university or college doesn't necessarily mean that's what you have to do for the rest of your life. If you want to make changes, you can. And you don't necessarily have to follow um, what your parents say. And if you feel like this isn't working for you and it's not serving you any longer, try something different. The whole world and like experiences things differently and you have your whole life ahead of you. I remember thinking in, in your 20s that you're so old and that if you, one thing went wrong, their whole life was over. But man, looking back now at 36, 20s are so young and anything can happen. Your life can be changed by one instance. And it's just almost refreshing to know that you can reinvent yourself over and over again. And lots of people nowadays have five, six different career changes before they find what they really want to do. So don't put so much pressure on yourself to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life as soon as you finish college, because you got a lot of time to determine what you find to be wonderful. So true. Stephanie, this has been such a fascinating and enlightening conversation, but that does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Hmm. Good question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I was in Suzhou, my first city in China. I had gone to a little, another city on a bus to go to a hot spring hotel for my birthday. I had just turned 27 
and I went alone and spent the weekend there. It was fantastic. So beautiful. So wonderful. And I took the bus back to the train station and it was like getting to be evening and I didn't check the train times and I got there and my train back to Sujo was gone. So I spoke to the attendant there. And at this time I hardly spoke Chinese, a, a couple of words. I had only been there for a couple of months. And she told me there's no more trains to Suzhou. So you're just going to have to wait till morning. And I said, yeah, what am I supposed to do? This is a train station. Is there a hotel around here? What am I supposed to do? And she said, I don't know. Sorry, basically. Chinese train attendants are not the most helpful. <laughs> They're probably getting paid quite poorly and don't really want to deal with the white girl that hardly speaks Chinese. So I was left to sit in a KFC until they closed at midnight. And then at midnight, I was left sitting outside and I didn't know what to do with myself. I sat beside the security guard to stay safe. And then my phone died. <laughs> so that was great. Then a weird woman came up to me and asked me, Nisha Igoran, which means, are you alone? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, okay. And I said, can I use your phone? Can you help me? And she said, oh, absolutely. Just come with me over here. And I started following her. And she led me there. Like The whole courtyard was lit up. And she was trying to walk me just beyond the courtyard where it was dark. And a little inkling in my stomach said, eh, this is not a good idea. And this doesn't feel good. And why is she? why doesn't she just bring me her phone? Or why doesn't she just keep me in the light? Like, why is she trying to bring me over somewhere dark? And I felt weird about it, had the hairs on the back of my neck stand up a little bit. And I said, this isn't right. And I said, you know what, never mind. I'm good. I'm just gonna wait for my phone to charge. And, and this uh, security guard was helping me charge it. And I said, you know, never mind. And she's don't come took me by the hand. And I was like, yep, no, don't feel good about this. I want to go with you. And she's no, just like, come. My friend has a phone over here. I said, yeah, no. So I went back to the security guard. My phone had charged up slightly. So I was able to call the only person I knew that could perhaps help, which was my teaching assistant who was Chinese back in Suzhou. I called and called. She finally woke up and I told her, listen, I'm stranded in this other city. I don't know what to do. This woman is trying to let me use her phone. It was a weird situation. She was like, do not talk to anybody. Do not go with anybody anywhere. Just keep your head down. We're going to come get you. My dad and I are going to come pick you up. It was about a two hour drive. So I sat again with the security guard, just trying to not lose my shit. I again was alone. I didn't know where I was. My parents didn't know where it was. My teachers, other teachers didn't know where my boss didn't know anything. So I was like, okay, I don't know what the fuck to do here. And so my friend arrived two hours later and I couldn't believe how happy I was to see this person. And it was definitely the nicest thing that's ever happened to me in terms of somebody doing something for me because I don't know what I would have done without her. I was scared. I was young. I was vulnerable. I didn't speak the language. And when she got me, I just started crying. I got into the back of the car and I told her what happened and how the girl tried to lure me away from the light, which sounds very religious, but it's not. Tried to lure me to the darkness, basically. And my friend at the time was just like, yeah, I'm really happy you didn't go with her because that sounds like some sort of trafficking situation, which happens a lot to foreigner women that don't speak the language that are don't have their head about them. They get taken and forced into forced slavery and sex trafficking and all that terrible shit. And she was like, yeah, that easily could have happened to you. Why else was she trying to bring you to a weird area with no light? And I was like, damn, okay. And her father heard the story. My girl had re relayed it back to him in Chinese. And he just kept saying, huai dan, huai dan, huai dan, which means bad egg, baby, basically like rotten egg in English. And I was like, what? What, like, what does he mean by huai dan? And then she told me bad egg, like that woman definitely would have done something wrong to you. And maybe you wouldn't be here if you didn't give us a call and if we weren't able to pick you up. So that obviously changed my whole view because when you're new to a country, you're naive and you're thinking that everybody's here to help you and no one's here to hurt you and you're 27 and you're invincible. And so that changed my whole outlook.
that there were bad people that were trying to hurt other people and that I should always trust my gut. And that's what I did. And then I called somebody to help me. And that was the nicest thing that I've ever had anybody do for me. Basically saved my life. Wow. That's quite the story. Yeah. And I'm a huge um, true crime fan. So thinking about this much later after hearing so much true crime, I was like, wow, I totally avoided a very bad situation, which blows my mind. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, Visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.